Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So what's the poster on your wall? The uh, typewriter with what, what's going into it? Is that planet? Um, I'm not quite sure. This is my, this is my, uh, my, my partner's. So it's like little people hanging on strings and like balls, you know, <laughs> who knows? I mean, it's, it's quite a nice picture, but, uh, I think it's, yeah, okay. little people on strings and balls into a typewriter. I think it's a, it's a, the, it's a, I don't know, it's meant to be some, it's a comment on the worlds that we create when we sit down at the typewriter. That's what's... Exactly, it's an allegory for the writing process. I think. Andy, can you introduce yourself and tell us uh, the title of the documentary that you are here to talk to us about? Yeah, sure. Thank you uh, for having me on, guys. Um, yeah, my name's Andy Haywood. I'm a producer and journalist. Um, and for the last two years since Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, I've been largely covering Russia, uh, producing work from within Russia. Um, for Vice News, that's been short video. And then over the last sort of 12 months, I've been focused on a hour-long special film, which is uh, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes of work, just sort of bringing together a lot of our reporting. And that film's called Warped by War, Inside Putin's Russia. Uh, and that's coming out next month on uh, YouTube on the anniversary of uh, the second anniversary of the war. How long have you been back Uh, the last trip, which will, for the foreseeable, probably be my last trip to Russia, was in December. That's when we finished our last last elements of filming. Gotcha. Where all did you go in Russia? It's a big country. Yeah, no, it's it's huge. I mean, it, we've had a smaller and smaller footprint. Obviously, when Evan Gershkovich of the uh, Wall Street Journal was arrested, that really did impact the scope and scale of, of how we were doing our reporting and where we were prepared to go. I mean, a lot of what we covered post the invasion was mainly Moscow, St. Petersburg, but we also went to places like Voronish um, and, you know, other areas around, around sort of Moscow, really. I mean, part of our way of operating was also that we would try to really do stuff that was in drivable dif- distance of Moscow because of the nature of, of the situation, particularly post Evans' arrest, we didn't really want to be in a situation where anyone was asking us what we were doing or where we were or why we were doing it. We just didn't want to even get into a situation where we started having conversations with security officials. So to prevent or mitigate that, driving's a lot safer. Like if you take a plane, if you take a, a train in, in Russia, you will be flagged on a system as traveling. Like you need to sort of show your passport when you get on, even for an internal train. So to guess prevent that, we sort of decided to operate in a way where we, we drove, which did limit our ability to cover things to a degree. Um, but I think it gets in, improved our safety. I mean, I, I would have liked to have gone more places, but, um, 
guest on the on sort of safety we, we thought you know you don't want to fly to a region where you know there's a large sort of fsb presence and guest be flagged on the system even no however good the uh the interviewee would be i mean prior to evan we were a bit more expansive we traveled to dagestan and which is uh one of the muslim majority republics in the south which has supplied a lot proportionately supplied a lot of the soldiers that are fighting in um in ukraine for russia um you know and and, and uh, a range of other places uh, uh, across uh, across russia we could be a bit more prior to evan we were operating with a bit more flexibility because technically our accreditation which you get from the ministry of foreign affairs as a journalist foreign journalist working in russia does mean you are free to travel but the reality was it's not really that simple and people can choose to take exception to what you're doing and then after evan was arrested it is very hard to know exactly what the rules were anymore and i mean i mean i think that's part of the the point and that's part of where russia's going i mean it was always unpredictable but i think the unpredictability has increased the the risk that it's not just that you might that might be wrong you're not sure if it's wrong or not but the, the possibility is if 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 you are stopped doing it or asked about it or they can make an issue out of it so i think we were just in the mindset where we really want to limit our exposure as best we can we're still trying to get access to people we're still trying to tell the story and that was the sort of balance we were trying to strike really do you have any thoughts about why russia's letting journalists in at all yeah it's it's an interesting one i mean it's i don't think any of the answers the answers are necessarily good ones i mean when it comes to to like evan's situation you do wonder if part of the desire to have some foreign journalists in is to potentially have them there as bargaining chips they are foreign citizens that exist within russia and they can be used if necessary so i think that's one way you could think they're they, they think they could potentially be useful i mean they definitely have tried to limit the number of journalists, not necessarily explicitly, but if you drop out the system, lose your accreditation, because now they used to be able to get accreditation for a year, that now you can only get it for three months at a time. So there's a whole lot more bureaucracy to keep in the system. So they've made it harder to stay in the system. If you fall out of the system, they're then very reluctant to reissue accreditation. So to some degree, they have limited the journalists that are there. May, may, maybe more like, I don't know, I sometimes think maybe no one has made a clear decision for the MFA. So they're kind of existing on some sense of like, we'll keep accrediting people in the system, but to get a new person, we're going to need some higher degree of sign off than we had previously. Um, but yeah, the, the one scary thought is that maybe they want some people as sort of potential bargaining chips. The other thought is historically Russia wasn't as fussed about what foreign language media said to them says said about russia in countries that aren't russia so if you're not talking in the russian language if you're not criticizing or commenting on the situation in uh, in russia to russians they were a bit more laissez-faire about it they were like well you know and also it feed it fed into how russia liked to portray itself it didn't want to say we're an authoritarian regime but wanted to say no we're an open country. Yes, we have different values, but we let your journalists in. We let you say what you want about us. We're not authoritarian. We're not a dictatorial regime. People genuinely support Putin. You know, this is this is the choice of how we live our country, and we're, we don't care what you say about us. And that, I think, even up until Evan, was what most of the foreign press working there largely, largely went by. Because most people, and I mean, you know, after the start of the war, and quite a lot of people did leave because it was unclear what the new status quo was, but they brought in laws that were basically about 
it was a crime to discredit the military, but in actuality, discrediting the military means potentially telling the truth about the, mili- the military, like saying things that the Russian state does not like being said about their military. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's hard to know exactly what why they allow journalists to operate. I think I think a lot of it is, yes, that historic reason about they were kind of, well, we're not actually chucking people out yet, potentially as bargaining chips. Um, but yeah, also potentially there's there's decisions that haven't been made about it, and and there's just people in the system. And yes, like I say, they're losing journalists by attrition. There are some individual examples. People I know who had their accreditation taken away said, "No, we're not issuing it because we don't like specifically what you've done." But it's also it, it's very hard to work out because you know people have different handlers at the MFA. Different people work with different journalists. And, you know, it's it's not exactly clear, but I think that also creates a kind of fear and an uncertainty. You don't know what the rules are. You don't know what could be a problem and what couldn't. And, yeah, so, I, you know, there is – I'm not sure exactly how many, but there's, there's only a handful of, of foreign journalists um, who, who are there now, sort of Western journalists. Obviously, I think other countries with more cordial relations with Russia, it's slightly different. And this ambiguity, this fear, this uncertainty permeates – everything uh, around this war and around Russian society, or at least that's what it appears from the documentary, right? Yeah, yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I mean, I think that that is part of the power of the, of the, of the state that Putin has created. It is the fact that you, you don't need to prosecute every person who goes against a law. You just need to have a sense of fear that doing X or doing Y could lead to that. Like the character in the film, Artyom Kamardin, uh, uh, he was a sort of a low-level activist, generally sort of oppositional to the to the Kremlin, to Putin's regime. You know, he gets arrested for performing an anti-war poem. It's an anti-war poem. More specifically, it was anti the the military draft in in, in September October twenty twenty two, where they were drafting young men into the army for a forced forced conscription. Um, it's not a particularly outlandish attack on Putin. It's quite a subtle protest. It's a it was a poetry reading attended by you know twenty people at max. Like this was not a big event, but you know, and this is we need to sort of update the the end of the film, and we will do. But like now, he's been convicted for seven years for that and that doesn't mean that every person who said something oppositional uh, or critical of the war will have that happen to them but the fact is it could happen to them and there and if you are charged the likelihood is you will be convicted and you will go to jail and it will be for a disproportionately long time you know for more than you know we're, I, I mean this is the thing at the same time as, as someone like artim has seven years uh sentence for, for, for a poem, you also have prisoners who were recruited by Wagner, who fought in Ukraine for six months, might have been murderers, might have been rapists, pardoned after six months service, and now free people back on the street. So, I mean, I mean, I don't know, I mean, uh, slightly going off, off topic there, but um, I, 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 I actually think that does also add to the fear. And that also sort of shows, I think, the psychological state Russia is in at the moment, like, and and the risks, the risks from from uh, yeah, the, the decisions the state is taking, um, and uh, and at ease with with sort of violence as well. I mean, Artem's arrest was a very violent arrest, even by Russian standards, quite violent. Like he was, 
he he was raped, sodomized with a piece of metal. Like that's that's quite rare, even by Russian standards. But you know, you have all these killers, murderers being released back into society. You have a war which has maybe claimed a uh, hundred and hundred thousand Russian servicemen killed, service personnel could could be more. So uh, you know, I mean, some estimate. It's very hard to know what the true number is. Latest U.S. estimate was total casualties could be three hundred thousand. That's that's killed and injured. It's like it's like there is a lot of trauma. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of extreme behavior happening in Russia at the moment. And the war is, is facilitating that and breeding that and creating more of it. And it's, you know, it's a cycle, which is, I think will, you know, get worse as this war continues. I mean, obviously depend depends what support Ukraine has and how able they are to continue fighting. But if, if the war continues, I think that, that, that sort of, um, that violence will continue within Russia too. And that fear will continue because it's all, it's all linked together. In that kind of environment, how do you get anyone to talk to you? Yeah. I mean, very, very hard, really. I mean, the, the fact is some people are, are still brave. I mean, when it comes to Alexandra and, and Artyom, two of our main characters, Artyom, the guy I mentioned who's arrested, Alexandra's his fiance uh, and then wife as, as the film goes on. I mean, they are people who have an oppositional position and were prepared to talk about it. I mean, also, from our perspective, they don't actually were well, Alexandra, who's our main contributor, because our team's obviously detained. She she doesn't actually say anything overtly oppositional or criminal. She's not discrediting the military. She's she's sticking by the rules in a way. But in, in her situation, I think by just showing what's happening to her and her partner, you get you you understand the nature of society there she doesn't need to say anything you know her partner has done a poem you can see the poem you know he's facing potentially his upper limit was was uh ten and a half years he was facing you see her distress at that you see the fact that this is a a, a huge powerful uh security state being brought to bear on on people with no lo- major profile they weren't in any way a major threat so you know in in their case, they were prepared to speak to us because I think they they know their sto- story is important and they live in they live in the activist space. I mean, in in other cases, we're talking to pro Russian people, and there are still plenty of people in Russia, the kind of headbangers who are like all for the war or make their money from being for the war, who are happy to talk to you. Um, we, we, you know, but then you know that's also a concern for us because it's like. You know, previously in Russia, we've had interviewees who are pro-war who've who've called the authorities on us when they didn't like how an interview went. So there's a balance there about how you handle something like that. But then again, you could argue we're sort of showing a platform and we're giving a platform to these people. I mean, a lot of them already have platforms, but I also think it's very important to to show these kind of characters that exist in the Russian. In the case of the film, I'm, I'm talking specifically about. Stas Vasiliev, he's a propagandist we speak to, but these, these are the kind of pro-war characters that are part of the Russian media ecosystem. And in their case, it was quite hard to find a propagandist who was prepared to talk to us. But also, again, they're kind of unashamed and they're kind of ballsy people who go out and give their opinion. And, you know, a lot of them veer into conspiracy theorists. I think, I think you know, they are like, like Stas is, you know, you... I can't think of exact sort of American equivalent, but you know, there's sort of elements of a bit, a bit sort of Alex Jonesy about about a lot of these pundits and the sort of things they go into and the conspiracies they indulge. You're talking in. about the guy that the the one you talked to, the uh, the brunette gentleman. 
Yeah, yeah, he's he's like the second scene. Yeah, he's he's um he's arguing with uh, a guy over Zoom, a guy who's been um who's in exile because he's facing arrest. Yeah. He kind of reminds me of um like a Stephen Crowder. Do you know who that is? It's kind of a low tier. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, no. I think Stephen Crowder is a pretty, a pretty good bet. Yeah, yeah. It, it it was very. That was um was one of my favorite bits of the documentaries when you dive when you talk to him and you kind of dive into their media ecosystem, uh, which I see bits and pieces of, but like kind of getting the full sale assault that you give us in the doc was really fascinating. Um, can you talk about? the kind of ideology that's being pushed on cable news um, and how it's different from like what's being pushed to the youth culture. Cause they are two different things, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they are two different things, but there's, a, there's, there's quite a lot of crossover. So someone like Stas, he, he exists, he has like quite a big online presence and a lot of the funding for things that he's been involved in comes from a push from the Russian state to put funding into into digital media. Because if you look at most polling, and it's always hard to know about polling in Russia exactly, but generally younger people are less supportive of the war. So they seem to be putting more money into, into, into the digital space. But someone like Stas, he's actually a sort of protege of a, of a, of a more famous Russian pundit uh, called uh, Solovyov, who is, who is um, a very famous face on Russian TV for the last sort of 20 years, who has been on all the traditional state TVs. And he's the person that's kind of, Stas's show actually gets shot in the same studio as, as Solol, uh, sorry, time, 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 as uh, Solol, Solovyov. Um, and he has had Alex Jones on his show as well. Um, and so there, there is a mix. And in many ways, like, I think what where Stas different, differs a bit from the more table audiences that's and this is something i would have you know if it was an article or something we could have probably got into more is he's a self-described like um uh, communist so he basically has this kind of quite contrarian position of like well and we talked about putin and stuff like he didn't really criticize putin but he also like he kind of criticized is the capitalism of russia and he has like a critique of russia uh, so he comes from one a more unusual place, and he comes from a kind of slightly like questioning, like a conspiratorial view, where it's kind of, you know, yes, but this is a, a worldwide conspiracy, a capitalist conspiracy. Potentially, there's some sort of anti-Semitic elements to what he's saying sometimes, and then, but then he doesn't extend that critique to like Putin being part of that. He sort of incorporates Putin as some sort of even though Putin's run a sort of crony capitalist system as a sort of bulwark to further like um, sort of capitalist takeover and the new world order and the global elite coming and sort of uh, selling Russia up and sort of, you know, uh, getting rid of its culture, I guess. Um, But he, that that idealistic space that we kind of described in the film as what about I think is, a bit more unique to him and maybe that's a bit where the youth are because the youth are generally a bit more skeptical i mean when he had his youtube channel he did have about 1.5 million subscribers before it was it was banned for sort of parroting pro-russian talking points so um i i think that is the angle with him to be a bit more a bit more guess contrarian maybe works i think if you go for the cable audience the more mature audience most russians still get their their information via television and 
like most of, of, of sort of, you know, America, Europe, it is an aging population. Average age is over 40. So most people are still largely TV watchers. And that probably has a bit more, it's a more of a traditional storytelling format as is, as is the same with sort of, uh, you know, uh, US or UK TV news. But it also, it probably bangs a bit more of a, a traditional drum when it comes to sort of, you know, the patriot, the Great Patriotic War, World War Two, is very sort of um, lionized in, in in Russia. And nukes um, and nukes, yeah. I mean, nukes, sort of threatening nukes, um, and and just sort of a, an appeal to sort of Russian might, Russian jingoism, and also the thing that Russian TV does a lot is it also references. You know, I I don't know if you, you do you want you'd be hard pushed to watch it and sort of get a sense of what's going on in Russia, because so many of the programs and the discussions start with like, well, we'll play a translated clip of something Joe Biden said, or we'll play a a clip from CNN of them talking about Russia. And they will, and they will lead in a program or have a proportion of a program dedicated to what's being said on a new, even just a news bulletin in another country. So it's really quite bizarre in the fact that that's where it's trying to, to pull people's focus. Um, I, I would say, though, when it comes to the youth formula, I don't know, and again, this is something we, we can't, don't really have the time to get into, into film, but how effective they are appealing to the youth is kind of debatable. Um, and also the TV audience, there is some polling to suggest that maybe people are somewhat turning off a bit because it's so much noise. It's so much sort of cacophony of, of like, kind of competing narratives and contradictory information that's there to appeal to your emotions and rile you up. But a lot of people, I think, in Russia are just trying to turn it off. I mean, although polling, again, suggests most Russians do support the war, I think there is also a lot of apathy within that support. They support it because there really isn't many true alternatives in Russia. There isn't many clear alternative information sources left in Russia. So I think, I, I, I think but there is it's by default a position people adopt, but I think there is a lot of apathy there as well. And that all this screaming and shouting, it does have, have a dedicated audience and, and it is very unhinged and very dangerous. And, you know, how, how, if you joke about nuking a country or, or, or at least sort of play with the idea of it on TV, I think, you know, how far down the line does that become a reality? I think if you discuss Something like in the case of the clip we have, which is is nuking Britain, but you know people have talked about Russians talking about nuking the Baltics or nuking America. You know how like playing around with these ideas in such a frivolous manner. You do wonder at what stage does this become something that's a more acceptable idea? And I mean, from the top down in the Russian system, I mean, part of why Putin launched the invasion the way he did was because he was getting high on his own supply about what Ukraine was and what people were thinking in Ukraine. Like there were, there were clearly people advising him back with the information that his sort of propaganda networks have put out there, that like if you marched on the capital, Kiev, it would fall within 24 hours. Loads of, of Ukrainians would welcome Russian troops as liberators, and you could establish some proxy... Uh, 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 like politician, pro-Russian politician in power there, or you could, you know, put it in a more sort of like a, a union as Belarus with Russia. Like, like he was buying into the lie of the mythology created in his own system, and I think that that is what's worrying about propaganda. Like, uh, and and the Russian approach, I think, is like 
throwing so much at the wall. Let's see what what sticks. Because as Yekaterina Shulman, one of the political scientists we talked to in the piece, so much of of what you're getting on Russian media is really contradictory as well. And one day it's this, one day it's that. It, it, it's it, it's not something to follow. It's just an emotional dump. And they are hoping that some of it sticks. But again, it's like, you know, this is this is state funded media. It's like it's also how many people are truly watching? How many people are, are, are really taking it on board? And to what degree are they taking it on board? This is this is all very hard to say. But in a in a media ecosystem where that is most of what the content is, it like I think it does it does seep through to a large a large number of people, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, if you just imagine um like Alex Jones doing your evening news. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it's a whole level of crazy that it's hard to see in, you know, the United States. I mean, even if Donald Trump was reading the news, it's hard to know if he could go quite that far. Yeah. They get Steven Seagal as well. They've had, they've had Steven Seagal on as well. A different point. And Gerard Depardieu? Does he come on? But, uh, yeah. They, um, I, he might have come on actually. I haven't, I haven't seen that. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I know, I know he, uh, he is a citizen as well, and he has a he has own some land in Belarus as well, uh, and he's got a a, a a Belarusian vodka with his face on it as well. So, you know, maybe <laughs> soon coming to, to Russian TVs near soon. <laughs> it's the face that looks like the result of vodka rather than something I think you it probably actually is. use to sell it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> drink the vodka, get the look. <laughs> All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. So it sounds like there's a certain amount of flexibility uh, ideologically, as long as uh, you can agree on some certain things. Um, Russian nationalism, Putin good, uh, war good. Right. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's that's a pretty succinct take, actually. I mean, that's that. There was a bit more nuance there, and this, uh, like, like Russia has a lot of what are called mill bloggers, military bloggers who are who are sort of independent people who are sort of blogging about the the war. A lot of them through Telegram, um, and it's interesting. Before, but, uh, and the, the, before the Wagner mutiny happened, and. Uh, a, a very famous one is Strelkov, who was a kind of paramilitary leader involved in the first incursions into Ukraine and the Donbass and, and Crimea in, in, in 2014. Um, he sort of had set himself up as a military blogger and he represented a sort of small, but like quite, quite vocal minority of people. And this is something that our, our 
political scientist says in the film, who were kind of pro-war people who then, uh, and were pro-Putin, but as the war was executed so badly and the progress wasn't being made, they remained pro-war, but they ceased to be pro-Putin. And that's also what kind of Prigozhin ultimately became as well. So, but after Prigozhin's failed uh, failed sort of rebellion, Stelkov, this this military blogger, was then is 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 now also arrested and, and facing charges. So they've they've tried to sort of stamp that out. I mean, there's there's there is a degree of flexibility, and you know, there's plenty of times, even though technically you shouldn't say it's a war, you have to say it's a special military operation. Various TV partners have said a war at different points, and you they're, and they're not prosecuted or or, or sent, uh, censured for it because you know it's in the context of of how they're saying it, and some of them flip between. There's this flip between maybe downplaying the war and sort of, you know, it, it, it's a special military operation. Don't worry about it. You know, it's handled. The Russian military has it handled. And also, we're at war with all of the West, all of NATO. The reason we haven't made process uh, as much progress as we'd hoped is because we're fighting America. Like, like, so there's there's this kind of sort of double double game again. It's it's contradictory narratives. But yeah, if you stick to sort of pro war, pro Putin, you will, ge- you know, you're generally okay. But there are more nuanced opinions in there but they also then might be contradicted the next day because a lot of these shows they are very long shows they go out you know we we found those clips but often they are taken out of potentially two hour three hour programs some of the you see as the big round table discussions they have where they have like six panelists and a big jib camera swinging around those, those can last like three hours so there is a lot of stuff being said so yes, they they will sometimes go off topic or be trying. I, I feel like it's a bit like kind of awful kind of pro war stand ups who are like trying out material sometimes. Like they're 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 just riffing off each other, and sometimes that goes in slightly weird directions. But don't worry, we'll 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 try again next week. You know, I think calling. Uh, I mean, Strelkov certainly is a blogger, but he's so much more. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Yes, he is. Sorry, I probably underselling. No, you're. You, I think you're absolutely underselling. <laughs> Convicted in absentia of uh, downing the Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, um, was I think I can comfortably say one of the warlords in was it Donetsk uh, in the early part of uh, yes yeah, in, yeah. in the in the mm-hmm. uh, little green men part of the invasion. Um, consummate cosplayer. There's lovely yep. photos of him <laughs> in, in, in all sorts of regalia. Uh, and yeah, now like this person that's kind of been a huge part of this conflict for the last 10 years is now possibly going to jail because he got a little too critical. Um, yeah. And just kind of to focus on this space a little bit more, there was also, I can't remember his name, but there was the guy who, uh, was another one of these telegram born, very popular war bloggers, uh, who was giving a talk at a cafe uh, that I think was owned by Prigozhin, if I recall correctly. Um, somebody came in, gave him a gold medal bust uh, of him, and he thought it was very fancy, and there was explosives in it, and he's dead. Uh, so, like, the, 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 the Telegram war blogging space uh, is very serious and life or death. Interestingly enough, like a lot of some, like there's a lot of clown figures in there, right? But there's also these more serious and interesting. Uh, uh, thinkers and analysts like Strelkov, like the the guy whose name escapes me. No, I just wanted to throw that out there as a bit of context. Yes, yeah, the names escape me as well. But yes, no, exactly. Another, another, and then also you've got um, uh, Duganar as well, um, the daughter of um, 
formerly a more prominent sort of uh, uh, Russian nationalist ideologue, Alexander Dugan as well, who was also blown up in a bomb attack. Some speculate the attempt was on um, on, on her father's life, not her. Um, but again, yeah, I, I mean, he's not exactly a military blogger. He's been around the block for longer than that, but he's in a similar kind of fervent nationalist uh, space. And yes, previously more affiliated like with the Kremlin, but also some degree of autonomy. I mean, yeah, it's it's a tricky one because with all those cases, it's unclear exactly what what scores like there's people who want to sell scores or whose whose interest it is to uh to kill these people you know potentially it is it is ukraine potentially it's it's somewhere in the russian state it's it is really hard to know potentially it's it's someone else with another interest who knows that it can it will be blamed on other forces like i mean i think it is just testament to the kind of and I and I, I think again back to like sort of Wagner releasing prisoners and stuff like like this sort of edge of instability that is entering a lot of of Russian society these days. Like, and I will I do think will only get worse uh, as the as the war goes on. Like, the, some some very kind of and a lot of the people like involved in Donetsk and there's someone who I've interviewed in a in an earlier film who was um, Alexander Borodai, who is one of the the leaders of the of the of the breakaway region in the in the early or how uh, in the early phases of its existence. Um, again, you know, these are people who you know exist on the edge of sort of criminality on some level, have kind of nefarious pasts, and you know are kind of you know they might have put on suits and ties and stuff now, but they they come from quite like uh, like hands on like backgrounds where you know they're, they're basically people who have gone to sort of instigate war and instability and now they're sort of back within the russian system vying for position so you know it, it's really hard to know all of this stuff there's there's so much speculation and it's very hard to really know what the true cause of these things are but I, yeah i i do expect we'll probably see more of it i mean and also like I mean, I, I, again, with like when you when you return to like the Wagner mutiny, it's like you also see the potential for the the state to want to have these kind of purges, because particularly and that Putin's done quite a good job, and the, and the Kremlin and and the people around him have done quite a good job at maintaining stability at the moment. Uh, I think I think it's surpassing expectations in how the country's holding up. But if things if this war goes on, if it gets worse, if the economy gets worse for Russia. Like there will be more people thinking, well, do I shall I make an alliance with this person and try and oust this person or or, or jockey for position or you know, I'm not saying these are going to be these probably will not be people who are any better ideologically than Putin, but there's people who will have self interest and will think maybe can I can I benefit from this scenario? And I do expect like if this war does go on and it does go continues to not go well for Russia, then I think we'll probably see more of that sort of thing. Can I chase down a a tangent real quick before we move on? That's a little bit focused on this. Um, Can you talk about why Telegram seems to become so important? Um, And I had a question specifically about the documentary. The the footage of Artyom's arrest, that came Mm. from a Telegram link, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, You mean the... Which bit the 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 one where he's he's doing the poem itself, the footage that he got arrested for? No, the actual footage of of his arrest that y'all have. I think because it, it's got the the one twelve superimposed on it, which I believe is a Telegram channel. 
Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Sorry, no, no, yeah, of course, yeah. So the 112, yes, that is a Telegram channel which is pro, uh, like Kremlin, pro Russian state affiliated. It's it basically posts a lot of footage of that sort of thing, stuff where the only sort of uh, viable or, or like um, the only sort of likely contributor. Who, or the, uh, who who gave them that footage as someone who's in the Russian security services. And there's a few of these channels existed. There used to be one that, or a couple that sort of existed for Wagner as well, where they'd be the first Telegram channel to go to where you'd, you'd get like whatever video Prigozhin's doing that week or him, you know, shouting at Gerasimov or, or Shogu or, or, or various other pe- people in the military high command of Russia. That There were certain Telegrams that Wagner stuff would go on. 112 is one where a lot of like stuff like that goes on. There's also the footage of Artyom performing the anti-war poem. That was probably filmed by a a, a like pro-state provocateur of some description. From the people I spoke to who were there, they said, we didn't recognize who the person filming it was, and they have probably gone off their own back to then submit it to the security services. Um, so... There's, and there's a lot of that going on and there's and there's different groups i've spoken to in the past where it's like do they get a bit of state funding are these people working for the state or are they kind of they get a bit of money here and there but also they are just people who are very virulently pro pro-russian state or nationalistic and jingoistic and they and they go around and want to like try and catch people out and hand them over to the security services. So uh, quite a lot of that goes on on Telegram. These these channels become platforms of, of outrage for people with different political opinions. I mean, it's kind of interesting, Telegram, because it's it's got a lot of, of, of sort of pro, pro-Kremlin stuff, a lot of pro-Kremlin channels, and it's also got a lot of oppositional channels. And it's interesting. It's not, there's not, doesn't, it hasn't really been a concerted effort to, to close it down as there has been with, you know, now it's very hard to, you can't get Instagram, Twitter, like all the sort of Western platforms are gone in Russia with the exception of YouTube because lots of Russians just use it to watch stuff that's non-political. So I think they don't really want to have a backlash by, I guess, taking it down. But Telegram, I don't know. I, I, I don't, and it was originally the guy who found it, I believe, is, is Russian. I think he lives in Dubai now. I, 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 I would be intrigued personally to know a bit more about what the deal is with it because it does seem to have both sides operating on it. And a lot of these mill bloggers, they have Telegram channels. That's how they communicate. But likewise, a lot of oppositional figures do too. Um, but, it, it, you know, it is, it is like one of the probably most important apps in, in sort of the Russian-speaking world in terms of that is where a lot of information and videos is, is exchanged. And a lot of the channels there, if you want to know what's going on, in Russia in a first-hand context, that's, they're the things you want to follow really. And the military uses it as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I believe, I believe so. I mean, I mean, it's, they have their, I I think there's the official, there's official channels of like various people who are in the Duma and politicians and uh, TAS, which is like basically sort of Russia's news agency, you know, that they all have channels in there. So yeah, it's, it's a strange ecosystem. I, I do wonder and I've wondered when I've gone to Russia, do do is there any one monitoring of it or when it comes to Telegram or maybe is it harder to find certain stuff than other stuff? Is there some shadow banning? I, d- I don't know enough about it. I'd be very intrigued if someone has looked a bit more into it because it is it is somewhat of an anomaly. Um, I do wonder, like, again, with the same case with YouTube, like maybe there is a degree to which this is a very popular and prominent messaging app. Um 
we uh, we uh, we don't want to kind of upset the apple cart, or we feel like on in that ecosystem we have enough pro Russian voices that it doesn't bother us. Whereas you know when it came to like Instagram or t- Twitter, they were they were they were one like Western media companies. So, uh, like on that level, they they probably weren't too keen on them, and two maybe they felt they were they were hotbeds for like more oppositional bo- voices and beliefs. Um, and also, I mean. I, I I think also part of it was like, and I think this is the scariest thing, like lots of, Russia's a very, I mean, it's a very diverse society, but if you go to the cities like St. Petersburg, Moscow, the big population hubs, you know, it's pretty cosmopolitan. A lot of, a lot of young Russians today, you know, they had Instagram accounts that, you know, it's got progressively hard to get a working VPN, but people can still do it and be on these things and be connected to the outside world. But I think the, the scary thing is if if you think like in 10 years time, if you're a, if you're a Russian child who's now like eight or nine, uh, you know, ten years time, if this war is frozen or going on in some form, or even five years time, you are you've had a level of indoctrination that Russia hasn't seen since the sort of Soviet Union. I think you know they're they're launching, uh, they've got um, patriotic lessons in school now. You you are closed off to a lot of these external sources. It would it's quite it's hard to travel places if you're a Russian citizen. And I think the the, the scary thing is like wondering what effect that will have on these younger people in Russia as time goes on. Because at the moment, you know, you still people remember what life was like before this war, but soon that won't be the case for the youngest in society. I have a question about traveling, um, and yeah. what you did. How did people like? You know, the people running the hotels and uh, any other people like that you ran into, just average people, how did they react to you? I mean, now that uh, we're not we're not really friends. Um, yeah, it, it, a mix, mixed situation, really. I mean, a lot of people are, um, are, are are fine, like 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 particularly where I was mainly based, which is Moscow. Like there are people who have a more liberal outlook. There's plenty of people who who even though they're not expressing kind of those views in, in a public forum they're not supportive of the regime i mean i'd say you you've probably got a good 15 20 maybe to some degree 25% of russians who are not who are, who are quite like of the of the mindset that where russia's gone is not good and they are vaguely sort of oppositional to the, to to the status quo currently so and, and in Moscow, those sort of people are easy to find. So there, there's, you know, there's there's a lot of people there who are still friendly. A lot of people have left still. Um, I mean, also you still get a degree of like curiosity and guess and guess friendliness. Like Russians, they they they, they you know they, they can be very warm and welcoming, even even in sort of disagreement. I mean, so you know, like hotels and stuff where I've stayed and and, and been there, like people are generally quite cordial. Not always, but generally generally they are. Um, because I, I think also there's, I think for a lot of sort of Moscovites and people there, uh, there's a bit of a mourning about the, what's happened to their city. Cause you know, before the war, even after the invasion of Crimea, before, before the full scale invasion, anyway, there, there was still a lot of people. It was still a cosmopolitan place. There's still lots of Americans, Brits, Europeans of different types all in this city. And it, and it, and you know, it was a very cosmopolitan, big, exciting city with a lot going on. And I think, I think there's probably a, there's a degree of like people in, in in the in the capital who, who sort of mourn that like a lot of colors gone out of of the world a lot of the tourists are not there I mean there's still sort of Arab tourists uh, tourists from the, from from the far east as well like but, so there are there are people but it's it, it it's it's changed as a city so I think people 
sometimes still just have a sort of curiosity. And that doesn't mean they wouldn't necessarily be kind of pro the war, but I, I think it means they've got other they've got other interests as well. And like I say, I do think there's just a lot of Russians that are kind of would guess kind of like this war to go away. That's not the same as opposing it, but they're not like that. Like even the support, like the good, the broad support for the war, it isn't fanatical support. It's support that's out of the idea that if you live in a world and ecosystem where everything, your personal interests, your job, the risk of going to prison, every, everything is is pushing you in a direction to believe and guess accept the status quo, then you will accept the status quo. There are no alternative media outlets in Russia anymore, no independent media. There are no independent politicians that exist. So there's no one there who's really in the Russian language expressing expressing an alternative opinion. And if no one can express an alternative opinion freely, it's very hard for someone who's got a doubt about how the system's being run or a doubt about Putin or the war to, to think that maybe someone else has a doubt and maybe they can discuss these doubts and doubts become different opinions and opinions become action there's no space for that anymore. Um, but back back to your point, yeah, people are. It's it's a mixed bag. I mean, there's a couple of instances I've had some degree of of of, of sort of aggression, but I mean, or, or or sort of animosity. But I mean, generally, we were trying to operate in a way where we kind of avoided getting into those into those situations as well. Um, but yeah, it's it, it it's it's a strange place to to operate, particularly as as someone who traveled there prior to this as well it's it's just gone through a, a transformation um and it's a place where like a lot's going on but in a way like less is going on than ever before like there is a sense of people keeping their heads down maybe a slight sense of the city being a bit more kind of less vibrant of touch underpopulated like it's i don't know it's 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 a strange place to be and um a strange place to operate um yeah but then also moscow's a, like a still a very diverse place in the sense that there's lots of Central Asians, a lot of sort of the cab drivers, Yandex drivers, the equivalent of like Uber there. You know, they're not they're not Russian. They come from Central Asia. Um, I mean, interesting. I also noticed there's there's a lot more um, African migrants who are doing jobs at the hotel. Like I, I definitely noticed like like the waiters, the number of African waiters or when I'm at the when I was getting my visa renewed, a lot more Africans and at the airport, a lot more um like arabs and people from the middle east as well like there was like coming to sort of fill i think gaps in the labor market and jobs as well um i mean also like i think putin's just signed a bill about like potentially fast-tracking citizenship for for foreign nationals who come and serve in the russian military like it's it's uh it's a strangely evolving place and also it's kind of interesting i find how like putin who's based a lot of his appeal on being a kind of uh, a Russian nationalist, you know, kind of our foreign ideas are bad. Foreigners are, are kind of bad. We're not really into them too much. It's kind of interesting how this war, I think, is actually provoking quite quite new migrations into Russia as well, which, again, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out if this war continues and the need for manpower continues as well in this way. What about the soldiers who survive and come back? What is their mood? What kind of stories are they telling? Yeah, so obviously in the film we have a, a guy called Yuri. That's not his real name, but he it exactly represents that voice. I mean, he's someone who was injured by shrapnel in his leg and his head had a concussion, had um, and he's got a stammer from that. I mean, I, I think there is a lot of aggrievement, and you know, there's videos and stuff circulating on on Telegram channels which shows that Russian soldiers aren't happy. Um, 
but I think that's that's one side of the story. I think the fact is at the moment the Russian state is paying Russians quite good wages to fight. I mean, after they tried to sort of conscript people because they needed manpower, they've shifted to guess doing like a sort of uh, full court press kind of like uh, 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 recruitment on steroids kind of thing, like lots of posters, lots of recruitment, trying to get people to sign up voluntarily. And part of how they've done that is they're offering what are very considerably high wages for for Russia. So, well, for parts of Russia, you know, I think about maybe a quarter, maybe 20% of Russians still don't have indoor plumbing or indoor toilet. Um, there's a lot of places that are really very poor there. And they're offering, I think, the equivalent of sort of $2,500 a month, which is is many times more the average wage in some parts of Russia. So I think in certain places like that, there, there, there are soldiers who are like seeing it as a, as a good opportunity. But then I also think the reality on the front is there's still probably some degree of incompetence. There's still, from the way Russia has been attacking like police like Avdivka more recently or or Bakhmut historically or, or a few a few months ago, they, they, they do throw men at the problem or, or people at the problem. So, and I think if you have got, had limited training and you're, and you're put into uh, to combat, I think there there is probably a lot of disgruntlement. I mean, it's, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's something that's tricky. Like, like with the soldier we talked to, that's a snapshot of, of one thing. And a lot of his experience is more towards the start of the conflict. You, you would probably get different opinions as it goes on, but I certainly think there is a dis there is a disregard for life about how Russia uses troops, and also historically their approach has always been, and 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 the World War II, and World War Two is so kind of lionized in their culture, and and I've had Russians say it to me, they go, you know they go the, the thing that makes us kind of a great country or or kind of where why we'll win against anyone else is because we will keep going and and also they have they have the manpower to keep going i mean they don't have 190 million people as they did during the ussr they they maybe have 140 150 million but that is a lot of potential people um so and and i do think and i don't i don't want to make some mass cultural like 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 guess sweeping cultural statement but i do think within some elements of Russian culture, and because it's had a political system which has kind of beaten out uh, free thought and free expression of opinion and opposing opinion, and it's called on this history of sort of self-sacrifice for noble causes, I I do think there is some sense in which people don't necessarily um, speak up about about these costs like we obviously have one mother who is speaking out but even her criticism is not the most full-throated even though she's lost her own son but there i think there's there there and also a lot of these people being recruited come from the poorest less educated less regions with the least agency in russia and i think they kind of they're kind of a bit condemned to their fate if, if you exist in a system where your vote doesn't even really matter what voice do you have? What 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 do you think your opinion or you protesting is worth? And yet, loads of Russians do. There's plenty of footage of of soldiers arguing and, and fighting with commanders and and talking back. But I think there, unfortunately, there's probably a lot of people that have sort of been cowed by the system and have been 
and, and being forced into it. I mean, our scene in the conscription center, we're talking to uh, Oleg, a young soldier who's going off to war. And I mean, it's partly because of the camera, but it's also, but it's also quite a Russian response to sort of say, oh, well, I assume the right decisions have been made. That's kind of, you know, that's like above my pay grade, what you're asking me. Um, and I and I think that's out there. And I think that's a, a mindset which, until you have sort of more free media, more free discussion, more free expression, it's kind of hard to break. It's it's kind of fascinating. It's It is as if the... You can talk about the immediate pain, but any kind of higher level thought about perhaps why that pain is happening uh, and what the consequences or what the political consequences uh, of it may be is like so verboten that you don't even think about it, right? Because you can't express it or talk about it in any kind of public way because you know what the consequences of that are going to be. Um and I wonder what the long-term effects of yeah. that are going to be on – will be on a society and a culture. Well, I, I think it's it, it's been happening for a long time. Like I, I think that's what summed up President Putin's time and power. Like his original contract was like, you leave politics to me. I will give you stability and prosperity. You now – you after 2013, wages sort of stagnated. You kind of lost prosperity. Then uh, – I think in, in the alternative that was he started offering glory. You saw what happened with with Crimea. That was very, very popular in, in Russia. And I think he saw something like that. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that factored into, 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 into his decisions about the invasion, full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's a bit like a sort of Roman emperor giving the starving masses the games, I kind of feel like you can't you can't give them you can't give them the prosperity, but you can give them other things. You can make them care and feel like they're important, their country's important, and they matter. And I think that's the kind of toxic combination that has been fed to Russia for the last 20 years. It's on one level apathy, don't involve yourself with politics, this isn't something for you. And that and the slow sort of removal of rights, which has, you know, really began in the very early days of Putin's time in office and has just got worse and worse as the years has gone on. It has been a slow uh, you know, sort of training or, or education to the Russian people to tell them don't be involved in politics. And a lot of Russian like political campaignings and stuff isn't based on like necessarily Putin being the best thing ever. It's based on him being the only option. Do you remember? Like, do you remember what the nineties were like? They were terrible. Putin came, he solved that. He, like, he's you're with Putin. He's like a, a a sort of stable thing that's been there forever everything outside him is more risky, more dangerous, more, more, more unknown. So you, you, you stick with him and you keep your head down and you don't engage. So it's, it's, it's not just the fact there's a political price or a personal price to be paid if you do speak out. I also think the whole system for the period of his rule has been geared towards trying to get people to opt out of the system and to offer them like, like he offers an ideological smorgasbord as well. Like, like that's the thing that the the, the, the ideology of present day Russia is. It's like a, a church I visited. They've got a church on the outskirts of Moscow. It's a church to the armed forces, Russian Orthodox Church, uh, like commission built uh, under Putin's time. And in there, it's a church, but you've got like a hammer and sickle. You've got like paintings to air, like mosaics to every war, like Russia's been in. It, 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 you know, if if they want to have a, and that's a czarist war. A Soviet war, uh, like a, a like a, a Putin war, like like this idea of like bringing all the elements of Russian power. You know, it can be Catherine the Great, it can be Stalin, it doesn't matter. 
this is Russian power, bring it all together. Um, and trying to, I, I, I like, again, it's, it's use what works. I mean, there was talk at one time that they wanted to get Lenin out of, of Red Square. Uh, and I think Putin himself didn't want Lenin to be moved because he said something along the lines of like, if they take it, if they took Lenin away, it's like everything that everyone believed was like a lie. And so in, instead of taking something like that where it's like, just add on other elements, because all, all the main message is, is Russia is powerful and Putin is powerful. Putin has Russia's best interests and Russia's best interests are being, you know, a belligerent, powerful state, which is surrounded by enemies in a hostile world. So I don't know, it's, 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 it's a coercive narrative on many levels and it's got parrot and stick to it. And, and it's feeding people's base emotions as well as potentially threatening them if they step out of line. But it's, it, it, it's quite a complex if, if contradictory and, and, and uh, convoluted sort of ideological framework that's been built. I mean, in many ways, it's not really an ideology because it's, um, it, it doesn't really got any cohesiveness to it. And in many ways, it's, it's a system designed to keep one man in power and to allow for kind of crony, crony capitalism to sort of flourish in Russia as well at the same time, I think. Well, that's the kind of dark note that we like to strike at the end of an episode. Um, Andy, where can people, again, can you remind people where they can find this and what it's called? Yeah, so it's it's called Warped by War Inside Putin's Russia, and our planned release date on YouTube, the Vice News YouTube, will be uh, on the anniversary of the second anniversary of the war, so uh, February 24th. Do you want me 24th? Yes, 24th. Andy, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and talking to us about this. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been great talking with you guys. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like us, if you really like us, you can give us $9 a month at angryplanetpod.com or angryplanet.substack.com. It helps us keep doing the show and get you access to the Angry Planet Discord, which is up and popping. People are in there where where uh, shared memes. I've got a, a, an episode schedule in there that kind of tells you where I am with any uh, given episode and like what's upcoming. Um, also see kind of like the things I'm reading during the given week, get some of the older, uh, people like Jason and Joseph in there soon, uh, get some of the discussions going. Uh, Aram is in there. He's posting some great memes. Um, so yeah, it's a great place to be, to hang out. It's finally up and, uh, we've got some, some bonus stuff coming. It's going to be one this month and I've got a bigger project that's going to be coming to subscribers that I'm really, really looking forward to sharing with y'all. Uh, it's going to be a little bit, be later this year. I guess my my hint to, as to what it is is that uh, we should really remember the 90s. We should really, really remember the 90s. Anyway, we will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Stay safe until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.